This is Green Under Pressure, and I'm Susan DiGiulio. In mid-August, the citizens of Sao Paulo, Brazil, were plunged into darkness mid-afternoon by smoke from fires in the Amazon Basin, over a thousand miles to the northwest. Since then, the world has been focused on the Brazilian Amazon. We asked Professor Virgilio Viana, one of Brazil's leading experts on forestry and sustainable development and Director General of the Amazona Sustainability Foundation, for his perspective. We are in a huge uh, crisis. It's both an ecological crisis and a political crisis. The ecological crisis is because the Amazon is very near an ecological collapse. And on another hand, we have a political crisis that is associated with the uh, set of uh, policies that have been put in place by the government of Brazil and that have resulted in, in a major international outrage. So this uh, is a, a moment where we have these two crises uh, coming up together. Eight countries converge in the Amazon basin, but Brazil shares the largest, and 17 to 18 percent of that has been deforested starting around 1970. We have a trend of increased deforestation and another of increasing forest fires, which don't necessarily mean the same thing. You can have a forest fire without deforestation, um, and and so it's not one the, uh, the same as the other. Uh, and the problem is that forest fires uh, result in mortality of trees. And the more trees die, the stronger the next fire becomes. And it's a snowball effect. And this is what worries us as scientists, that this snowball effect, they push faster the Amazon towards this uh, point of ecological collapse. Brazil's strong environmental policies were well enforced in the early 2000s, and deforestation dropped from an annual rate of 28,000 square kilometers per year to 4,000. There was a, a proof that it's possible to reduce deforestation, and this is partly associated with the environmental legislation that we have in place. But deforestation rates started to climb again, even before Bolsonaro took office this year. And his policies and rhetoric seem to be making it worse, leading to widespread illegal land grabs and clearing for agriculture and mining. Uh, the problem is that there is a political signal that these regulations are now going to be loosened. Uh, by a new vision and a new policy that is being put in place at the federal level. But these are actions of a few. We asked Vienna how the majority of Brazilians are reacting to the burning of the Amazon. Brazilians care a lot about the Amazon. Uh, there are recent polls that uh, have shown this. There are demonstrations going on in the streets of not only Sao Paulo and Rio, which are the most well-known, uh, cities outside of Brazil, but also in small towns across the country. But based on meddling in the past, both the left and the right are wary of international interference with the Amazon. How can the rest of the world help protect the Amazon without raising this imperialist specter? Well, the first thing that the uh, developed world should do is to work seriously on reducing emissions that result in climate change. Climate change is a uh, a uh, human-made phenomenon, and we are suffering a lot in the Amazon from the changes associated with the emission of greenhouse gases. Uh, the second thing is to meet the commitments that have been made at the Paris Agreement, not only in terms of 
reduction of emissions, but also in terms of international cooperation. I think we have to be much more ambitious in this regard, and we should focus on how to help governments, civil society organizations, business, and academia to work together towards solutions for protecting the Amazon. And the third component is political pressure, external and internal. Vienna cites the success of the 2006 soy moratorium. Trade policies uh, have an impact on, on different policies across the globe, and this is being uh, used widely. And in general, I think this is positive because it creates a linkage between the uh, sophisticated agricultural sector of Brazil and environmental policies. And this is already happening. Uh, there are a number of uh, business leaders linked to agricultural production that are raising their voices against this uh, problem of deforestation of the Amazon. Finally, we asked Viana what he thinks about Bolsonaro having sent the military in to control the fires. I'm not sure if the army is going to be able to focus on that kind of problem. So while I think it's relatively uh, symbolic and relatively a positive response, I think it's not a sufficient response. We need much more than that. We need to change the narratives around the Amazon. And the narrative should not be a a narrative of encouragement of illegal activities, but rather it should be a narrative that we have to stop deforestation. This is a priority. This has been Green Under Pressure, a Flatlands Avenue production, and I'm Susan DiGiulio. Find us wherever you download podcasts. If you like us, please share us, rate us, and leave feedback. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a political analyst for WGN TV and radio in Chicago and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. You can read my column in the presidential race in The Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com front slash Brad Dash Bannon. That's muckrack.com front slash Brad Dash Bannon. My most recent contribution to the Hill is my comparison of the climate change proposals made by the major Democratic candidates for president. Meanwhile, the world burns while Donald Trump fiddles. After you read my piece, uh, I dare you to share it with your friends. My company, Bannon Communication Research, polls for and designs research-based media and message strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, go to Facebook.com front slash dash communic- uh, to start that again. Uh, Facebook.com front slash Bannon 
www.communications-research. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. My thanks to executive producer Mark Grimaldi, who keeps me in line and makes sure the trains here run on time. Today we'll review the CNN Climate Change Town Hall and preview this week's Democratic presidential debate. Our guest today in the first half hour is Emily No, national political correspondent from Newsday. Tom Opel, the executive vice president at the American Sustainable Business Council, joins our own Mark Grimaldi for the pro- provocative progressive political panel in the second half hour. If you want to be part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. These are the questions that we'll discuss today in the first half hour of the show. Inquiring minds want to know. First, is climate change the biggest problem that the next president will need to tackle? Two, Currently, only Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren register in double digits in polls on the Democratic presidential race. Does the Democratic nomination go to one of those candidates, or can another candidate still break through? Third and finally, what do you want to hear from the Democratic candidates Thursday in the third round of the presidential debates? Our guest in this half hour is Emily No, a national political correspondent who is covering the 2020 presidential race for Newsday. Before that, Emily covered the Trump White House. Notably, Emily, like Mark Grimaldi and me, are Syracuse University alums, uh, which is, you know, I think worth noting. Uh, Emily, how you doing? Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. How are you? I'm well. How are you? It's always nice to be on with you. Okay. Uh, Emily, you recently uh, wrote a primer on the uh, climate change uh, positions of the Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, Before I ask you about that, I want to ask you this, a general question about uh, the role of climate change in the 2020 presidential race. Uh, I came across a poll that was done by CNN back in April, and they asked potential Democratic primary voters uh, what issues they thought were most important. And I was at least a little bit surprised to find out that climate change was on top of the list. Eighty-two percent of the Democratic voters uh, said that climate change was the issue that was most important to them. Number two, uh, at 75%, was uh, health insurance for all. And number three, was at 60%, uh, was curbing gun violence. Uh, does that surprise you or not, Emily? Um, it does a bit. And I don't know that every poll that, that, that surveys primary voters on the issues might find that same sort of a priority. And I saw that you pointed that out, of course, in your column in The Hill. But when I think about the primary electorate for for this upcoming election cycle, I think that health care and health insurance will be a concern to everyone. And it's what 
Democrats, whatever shade of blue, um, who are running for office will want to put front and center, but also whatever they rank one, two, and three, I think the other three major issues, not necessarily impacting um, voters as individuals, as families, would be the climate crisis, um, gun reform, or gun control, and also immigration. But it did, yeah, it did somewhat surprise me that, that climate change would be the very top on that poll. Okay. Uh, before we go back to climate change, I do want to ask you a question. Uh, you covered uh, the uh, campaign of uh, Senator, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, she never caught on. Why do you think she never, uh, uh, she never became a, a top-tier contender in the Democratic presidential race? Um, I think, I mean, there's several reasons that Kirsten Gilbert never caught fire. I mean, she seemed to have it all together on paper. She was at the fore and ahead of a lot of her competitors in terms of, of women's issues, whether it's abortion rights or um, combating sexual harassment. But expectations for her, I think, were extremely high because she's such a high-profile senator from, um, you know, a major Democratic state, a blue state, which is New York. And also, she, she could never go viral. She never had that kind of viral moment that other candidates were were, um, were able to get. I think one of her most viral lines, viral moments was when she was giving a speech in Iowa and someone tried to interrupt her and get past her, but they were just going to get the ranch dressing. And so that's not a very flattering moment for her. She had that Clorox line, too. Like The first thing she would do when she get, got to the Oval Office was Clorox it. Um, at the second debate, but that also doesn't do anything for her as a candidate or say anything very much about her policies. So uh, I think expectations are too high. She didn't have a compelling enough backstory, and that just wasn't enough to break through a field that's, that's as crowded as, it, as this one is right now. Okay. Our guest in this half hour is uh, Emily No, who is national political respondent for uh, Newsday. Uh, we're going to go to break now, but when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about uh, the role that climate change plays in Democratic presidential race. We'll be back after these messages. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. It's Daniela Gibbs-Leger. And I'm Ed Chung. We wanted to tell you about a new podcast we're co-hosting called Thinking Cap. Thinking Cap is a podcast for surviving the Trump administration. We talk to the nation's top progressive leaders and influencers and tackle major issues at the intersection of activism, race, policy, and politics. If Trump isn't your cup of tea, Thinking Cap is the podcast for you. Check us out on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. If you talk to me, We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, They need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. 
because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So talk, they hear you. You can do it if you try. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1929. That was the day a mistrial was declared in the case of 16 textile mill unionists in North Carolina. The mistrial sparked five days of anti-union vigilante violence. Textile mill workers at Gastonia's Lorry Mill had been on strike since April 1st. They demanded higher wages and shorter work hours, union recognition, and an end to the hated stretch-out system. Soon, textile workers at Bessemer City's American Mill walked off the job in solidarity and joined the National Textile Workers Union. Ella Mae Wiggins was one of the strike leaders at American Mill. She was known for her militancy, but also for organizing black workers into the union. As the strike wore on, mill owners evicted dozens of families from company housing. Wiggins helped set up a tent city. On June 7th, sheriff's deputies attacked strikers who marched to Lorry Mill to call out remaining workers. The police arrived at the tent colony later that evening to disarm them, and Gastonia's police chief, wound up dead. Immediately, more than 70 textile union members and leaders were rounded up and arrested. 16 stood trial for the murder of Chief Adderholt. The anti-union committee of 100 smashed up the NTWU headquarters in Gastonia and Bessemer City. They kidnapped, beat, and threatened to kill several union members. The rampage continued as scab forces moved onto Charlotte to raid the offices of the International Labor Defense, who had handled the strikers' case. Five days into the terror, Wiggins was killed on her way to a union solidarity rally. Outrage over her murder forced mill owners to improve conditions and wages. But the fight to organize would continue for years. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. What bothers me most about what's going on in the country today, we're walking around with our heads down like, oh, what are we going to do? We're in such great trouble. This is the United States of America. There's not a damn thing we've not been able to accomplish once we set our mind to it. You don't get to ruin the air for everyone else, the water for everyone else, the soil for everyone else. We don't just to help giant corporations. They don't get to make our kids sick. They don't get to shorten lifespans because it increases their profitability. It is so dangerous. It is dangerous. We are the most powerful country on earth. We should be leading the world to a global energy transition. And you have a president who thinks it's not real. That is idiotic. And as it relates to those Republicans in Congress, where I've now been for two and a half years, every one of those members needs to look at the babies, the grandbabies in their life, and then look in the mirror and ask themselves, why have they failed to act? 
Because on the issue of this climate crisis, I'm going to tell you, I strongly believe this is a fight against powerful interests. And leaders need to lead. So lead, follow, or get out the way. And get out the way, starting with Donald Trump. I mean, Congress right now is like, it's like a room full of doctors arguing about what to do over a cancer patient. And half of them are arguing over whether medication or surgery is the best approach. And the other half are saying cancer doesn't exist. Think of what a disservice this is. This is a life or death issue. In the year 2100, when my eight-year-old son, Henry, is going to be 88 years old, um, this planet will have warmed four and a half to five degrees Celsius. Uh, As scientists say, at that point, we are screwed. We need environmental justice in this country. People who are economically disadvantaged and people of color, many times they're the ones left behind. And when those houses get ruined, and you can see it in the Bahamas right now, it's often the houses of those that can afford it the least. As we experience more storms with more intensity, we need to both take the right steps to prevent climate change so that that won't happen, but then when it does, to address it, no matter who you are, and make it affordable, in part through that national flood insurance program. I'm committed to doing that. I'm going to warn folks right now. If you elect me your president, I'm going to ask more from you than any other president in your lifetime. Because I grew up from parents who taught me if there is no struggle, there is no progress. We can ignite that moral imagination of this country and we can deal with this problem. As big as it may seem, it's not bigger than who we are as a people together. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. And my guest in this half hour, and we're talking about climate change, is Emily No, who's the national political correspondent for Newsday. Emily, you just wrote a primer on the Democratic uh, uh, platforms on climate change. Uh, There's some similarities, but uh, let's talk about there are three of the candidates who consistently poll in double digits in the race. Uh, That would be Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, What sets their proposals apart from each other? If you just forgive me really quick, I just want to set the stage and and point out that in the 2016 general election debates, there's only six minutes spent across the course of those three debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump talking about climate change. So the fact that CNN this past week had seven hours of town halls back to back and then MSNBC next week is going to have two nights of a forum on climate change, I think is an indicator of how important that issue has become, how front center it's become. Um, But in terms of the, the three top polling candidates, that you just spoke about, the ones that are in double digits, there's a a range of solutions. I mean, you see Joe Biden pretty predictably um, taking a more moderate centrist approach where it's not a ton of federal investment. He's proposing uh, $5 trillion altogether with the bulk of that coming from the private sector and state and local governments. But on the other side, um, way, way far on the other side would be Bernie Sanders, who proposes spending $16 trillion, which is far and away the largest price tag of the plans. And then I would say that just in terms of scope, that Elizabeth Warren's climate change proposal is a little as much closer to Joe Biden's than it is to Bernie Sanders, as much as she and Bernie Sanders are aligned on other, on other fronts. Okay. Uh, in your uh, piece on climate change, Uh, You wrote that uh, two of the candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, 
uh, have proposed, or at least said they uh, favor the idea of uh, uh, consumers paying a carbon tax on any carbon-based product they use. Uh, I can see that as a hammer that uh, Donald Trump uh, could use on them uh, because uh, no, I think you quote uh, Mayor Pete in your pieces saying uh, the T word is like a hammer. Uh, do you think uh, that's going to be a big problem for Sanders or Warren if they become the Democratic Party nominee? Absolutely. Carbon carbon fee, a carbon tax, carbon pricing has been pretty much a political third rail, politically toxic for anyone who wants to bring it up, only because, as you pointed out, they're trying to tax the polluters to finance their climate change proposals, but that um, tax gets passed down eventually to the consumers. You know, they might be paying for it at the at the gas stations when they're when they're buying gas for their vehicles. So I do think it's something that the Republicans and Trump could use against the Democrats. Um, at the same time, the overarching argument from the Democrats is that you know we have to do something about climate change. It's going to hurt a little, but it's solving a, a big problem in a big way. And and carbon pricing is is one of the most effective. Um, according to the research, according to the poll, of the way to to curb emissions. Okay. Uh, just before I forget, Emily, if someone, if uh, any of our listeners want to read your uh, story on climate change, how can they find it on the web? Um, and just look it up at newsday.com. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me ask you a more general question about uh, the Democratic race. Uh, first, uh, the... Uh, Again, we seem to have three front runners. Although I, my long experience in campaigns tells me their primaries are incredibly fluid, uh, but we do have uh, Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren uh, seem to be uh, the front runners. You know, in all the national surveys I've seen, uh, we've got the uh, Democratic presidential debate coming up Thursday. Uh, do you think there's still time for one of the other candidates to emerge uh, and become a front runner in the race? Um, I do think there's still time. I mean, when I speak with analysts and experts like yourself, they like to point out that, you know, as much as we want to look at the national polls, we also want to look at the polls in the early voting states and the states that are first to caucus and first to primary. So in Iowa, you know, in when Barack Obama won the presidency, he was actually far behind in the Iowa polls, but ended up giving a speech of his life at the JJ dinner, and that was a turning point for him. So that's the idea that any of these candidates could go viral um, in a state that really matters, and if they win, say, Iowa or New Hampshire, it could be a domino effect going forward. So I do think there's still time for them to break out, but especially since a lot of voters, even those who are pretty invested, aren't quite tuned in yet. I think people are just beginning to tune in now that we're post Labor Day. Um, it's still early, and there's still much primary left to be had. Okay. Uh, you uh, are going to be watching the debate, I assume, Thursday night with a practice eye. What will you be looking for? All three for? night, all three hours. <laughs> okay. Uh, Emily, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I'm sure uh, we're going to have you back. Uh, you're one of most, our most popular guests. 
we're going to go to break now, but uh, when we get back from break, we are going to continue um, our discussion of uh, climate change here on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, so make sure you hang around. Also, uh, we definitely uh, love it when people call in to talk to the show. And if you want to do that, uh, the best way to contact us is to call 888-6LESLIE. Uh, and uh, we do want to hear uh, from you about uh, what kind of role climate change will play in uh, election 2020. Uh, so that number again is 888 888- uh, six Leslie, um, or if you're not into letters, you can call us at eight 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 six five three seven five four three. But anyway, we'll be back after these messages with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country thirty two years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Wayne Besson. The reaction by Donald Trump and the Republican Party to the horrific shootings in El Paso and Dayton are beyond disgraceful. Reading from a teleprompter, of course, well, he wouldn't say anything ridiculous or offensive. The president said, quote, hate has no place in our country and we're going to take care of it. No, we are going to take care of it on November 3rd, 2020, when we throw your bigoted behind out of office. Even more absurd, the president tried to blame the rampages on mental illness and video games. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't have a video game problem, Mr. President. We have a problem with game-playing Republicans who shift the blame for repeated massacres over and over again and away from the real culprit, which are guns. To quote a tweet by Hillary Clinton, people suffer from mental illness in every other country on Earth. People play video games in virtually every other country on Earth. The difference is the guns. It's hard to believe, but the NRA once stood for gun safety and was the hunter's lobby. Now, for a lot of money, it supports gun-worshipping extremists and the gun manufacturers that provide the means for these paranoid conspiratorial nuts to carry out their sick and twisted fantasies. The NRA says they stand for good guys with guns, yet bad guys with arsenals keep attacking us. America also needs to crack down on domestic terrorism, and the media needs to stop mislabeling the problem. Let's be clear, there are no white nationalists. What there are are white supremacists pretending to love this country while trying to destroy it. We must disarm them and stop their terrorism immediately. 
America is in crisis today because Republicans did nothing to stop the problem. For example, Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House, would not even hold hearings on the white supremacist terrorism of Oklahoma City when Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building. In 2009, Obama's Department of Homeland Security released a report warning of this problem, and yet Republicans in Congress irresponsibly buried the damn report and forced then-Homeland Security Chief Janet Napolitano to apologize for allegedly smearing conservatives. Oh, and by the way, a month after they buried this report, uh, an abortion uh, provider, George Tiller, was shot in Wichita, uh, Kansas, in a clinic. Ten days later, a Nazi murdered a security guard at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Right-wing extremists killed more people in 2018 than any year since 1995 when McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma. We can continue to make excuses for violent gun nuts and white supremacists, or we can declare such behavior inexcusable. The first step to restoring sanity is retiring as many Republicans from Congress as possible. Until we meet again, this is Wayne Besson. You can catch my show at waynebessonshow.com. is still defending his doctored map, insisting that he was right about Hurricane Dorian hitting Alabama. You might remember this whole thing started when Trump tweeted over the weekend that Alabama would be hit by Hurricane Dorian. And then 20 minutes later, the National Weather Service had to tweet, Alabama will not see any impacts from Dorian. We repeat, no impacts from Hurricane Dorian will be felt across Alabama. That was 20 minutes later. The National Weather Service has to monitor the president's tweets as closely as they monitor actual hurricanes. Which actually makes sense, because when you think of it, Donald Trump is the hurricane. Except, unlike regular hurricanes that eventually die down, every day, Trump blows harder. (laughs) After he was corrected by his own government, Trump doubled down. As you probably saw, he seemed to alter a forecast on the storm's past from last week with a circle added in Sharpie to include (laughs) Alabama. My favorite thing about this is that he didn't even try to blend it in. The whole thing perfectly captures the constant, exhausting bewilderment of living through the Trump era. There's a very real, a very real humanitarian crisis unfolding in the Bahamas, and a dangerous hurricane is threatening the mainland U.S. And meanwhile, the president is obsessing over a map he doctored to defend an embarrassing mistake that he is now repeatedly lying about. Almost nothing that comes out of his mouth is true. Welcome back. When news breaks, we fix it here on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. As usual in our second half hour, it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tom Opel, Executive Vice President of the American Sustainable Business Council. Founded in 2009, the American Sustainable Business Council is a network of businesses and business associations committed to the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. Overall, the council represents more than a quarter of a million businesses who understand that sustainable business is good business and a sustainable economy is good for America and good for the world. Joining Tom on the panel is our own executive producer, Mark Romaldi, who is a progressive political activist. Okay, let's start with this uh, gentleman. Uh, I uh, mentioned this in the first half hour. 
Uh, I came across a poll of Democratic uh, voters that was done by CNN back in April, and they asked the uh, Democratic primary voters they interviewed uh, to uh, tell them uh, how important each of these issues was uh, in the 2020 presidential race. Uh, number one on the list, and somewhat to my surprise, but maybe I shouldn't have been, uh, 82% of the Democrats said that the uh, threat from climate change was a very uh, big problem, uh, very important problem for them. Number two, uh, which I thought it would have been number one, uh, at 75% with uh, health insurance for all Americans, and number three at 60% uh, was uh, co controlling uh, gun violence. Uh, Tom, does that surprise you or not surprise you? Um, honestly, Brad, it does not surprise me at all. I think people are beginning, you know, uh, coming around to this idea that climate change really is the existential crisis that, that every human being on, on the earth, and never mind every other living uh, organism on the earth, uh, is, is going to have to deal with and, and is, is, well, we're already dealing with it. Um, you know, when you see the, the destruction from Dorian, um, you know, the oceans, the, the storms are getting more extreme and more sustained and more rain because the oceans are getting warmer, because the climate is changing. And it's, you know, it's our fault. It's, it's, it's people's activities that have created this climate change. And um, the other interesting thing, Brad, would be from that poll would be to check to see what the demographics were on age, because the, the people who are most affected by this clearly, um, as you and I know, are people who in the past haven't been reliable voters. And that's younger, you know, that's younger voters, 18 to 35. Um, but they're the ones who are going to be most impacted and my guess is they're the ones who are changing the, you know, changing the, the, the polling data to push climate change into the number one, uh, the number one spot. Yeah, well, you're right, Tom. Uh, the poll shows that uh, the uh, uh, concern about climate change is almost universal among uh, millennial voters. Uh, so, it, you know, honestly, it's pretty high across the board, but you're right. It is especially high uh, among millennial voters. Tom, let yeah, me they, ask you another question before sure. we uh, go to Mark. Uh, the American Sustainable Business Council, it seems to me, is premised on the fact that what's good for the environment uh, is good for the economy. And it seems to me that's also the premise of the uh, – uh, Green New Deal. Can you explain how that interaction works? Sure. You know the the original the original idea behind the Green New Deal, um, and uh, and I saw Senator Markey, who is the the Senate author of of um, you know uh, just a couple of weeks ago in in Boston. Uh, the Green New Deal is has been you know misrepresented. It is about uh, exactly what you're saying. It is about focusing on the kinds of uh, innovations, the kinds of new technologies, the kinds of new entrepreneurial opportunities uh, and economic opportunities that we're going to need in order to meet the climate change, the environmental issues that we're facing. Um, you know, from uh, from figuring out new ways to to create power, 
that are complementary to the to the to the earth as opposed to that that create you know the the, the carbon-based fuels that we have fossil fuels um, are polluting our atmosphere are polluting our home uh, the earth uh, you know it's, so it's going to be the kinds of innovation that gets us new technologies even beyond wind and solar um, you know to, uh, to to power Nobody's talking about, you know, turning out the lights. People are talking about how do we maintain the lifestyle we have and, frankly, expand prosperity around the globe uh, and still do it in a way that is sustainable for the long term where we're not, we're not destroying our planet. Uh, so absolutely, that's what the ASBC is all about. And that's, I think, becoming – and that's what the Green New Deal is all about, is matching the kinds of economic opportunities that are going to emerge – as we deal with climate change, as we deal with trying to clean up and preserve our environment and preserve our home, which is, you know, this is the only home we have, and this is the only one we'll ever have, at least in our lifetimes and probably in the lifetimes of those millennials as well. Okay. Uh, Mark, uh, the ever since uh, the uh, uh, Alexandria uh, Cortez, uh, Ocasio Octet, Cortez uh, introduced the Green New Deal uh, in the House along with Ed Markey in the Senate. Uh, Republicans have been beating up Democrats who support the Green New Deal for trying to destroy the economy. Uh, Do you think that uh, Democrats and progressives can turn that argument around? Yes, I think all they have to do is simply state the facts because the facts show that having cleaner technology, whether you're talking about these different forms of of energy like solar um, or wind or just, you know, having hybrid cars, uh, all these different types of technology are profitable because consumers and governments and businesses around the world know that it's the way of the future and it's becoming way more uh, affordable than it was initially. And because there's such a demand for it around the world, the countries and and their economies who get out in the forefront of developing this technology and producing it for consumers are reaping the benefits all while we are stuck in the past, um, you know, propping up fossil fuel industries that are dying off. So I think you can now make a simple economic argument for why it's the right thing to do to support uh, clean energy. And in the past, that was not always the case. It was a moral argument and, you know, a pre- uh, an argument of preserving us as the human race. But it was this distant thing that, you know, some people just couldn't see or didn't want to face. Um, whereas now the other thing that's going on is it's constantly in the news with all of these extreme weather patterns. I can't ever remember a time I kept have heard a uh, hundred year or five hundred year storm, those words being said happening more than once in a year in the same area um, for all these weather events. So I think that's keeping it in the news, number one. And number two, um, I think that there, you know, there's an interesting polling out today, Brad. You probably saw this. There's an Ipsos poll out showing that uh, millennials and those of Gen Z uh, from both Democratic and Republican Party have strikingly similar responses in the survey about their concerns about climate change. Some between 18 and 38, okay, that's that's what we're talking about for that demographic. Some 77% of younger Republicans 
say that climate change is a serious threat, which is actually one percentage point more than Democrats in that demographic in this particular poll. And the other thing that's interesting is you then look at uh, the those over age 39, um, 51% of Republicans agree that climate change is a serious threat, but 95% of Democrats over 39 agree that climate change is a serious threat. So you have a massive split in the Republican Party based on age, which, you know, you'd probably assume like, oh, oh, yeah, of course, younger Republicans know that this is a serious threat and want to do something about it. But I wonder if people knew that it was basically at a two to one margin. Um, And I think that that is just because, like Tom has pointed out, it affects younger generations even more. Number one and number two, I think that the honestly, the the younger Republicans haven't sat you know, in front of the TV growing up, just having Fox News turned on all the time. Um, They are more in tune to the actual news. So I think that that's there's a lot of different factors working and and we are moving towards that direction. Um, But it is uh, incumbent upon the Democratic candidates to make this argument effectively because you damn well know that Donald Trump's not going to do it. No, God knows. Uh, Donald Trump, Uh, of course, uh, believes uh, climate change is a Chinese hoax. Uh, But that doesn't stop him from uh, being a weather forecaster, apparently. Uh, (laughs) You know, it sort of reminds me of what uh, Joy Behar said. Just because you slept with a woman named Stormy doesn't make you an expert on weather. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let's go to break now, and when we get back from break, we will have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our guest, Tom Opel, and our own Mark Grimaldi. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Hi, this is John Androsik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead, designate before you celebrate. Friends, don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Woo! Let's get crazy! In movies, when someone at a party jumps into a pool fully dressed, everyone cheers them on and jumps in too. Just so you know, in real life parties, nobody jumps in after you. You just look stupid. Come on, jump in. Come on. Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. 
Hey, Russell Wilson here, and I know how important exercise is. It's essential. It's essential. With Play 60, United Way and the NFL are helping kids stay active and play at least 60 minutes a day. Healthy kids. Healthy kids. But what this place needs is you. To donate or volunteer, go to unitedway.org slash play60. Because great things happen when we live united. Donate, donate. Are you guys going to do that every time? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Politics Podcast with Richard Painter. We had interesting testimony yesterday from Robert Mueller. Well, that is interesting if you have not read the Mueller report. Because Robert Mueller, as expected, did not go outside the four corners of the Mueller report. His report, 400 pages long, lays out very clearly how the Russians conducted a massive operation to influence the 2016 presidential election in the United States and how various members of the Trump the campaign investigation. Part two of the Mueller report is there for two reasons. One, as Robert Mueller noted yesterday in his testimony and is noted in the report, President Trump can be charged with this criminal conduct when he leaves office. That is a decision that should be made by an independent prosecutor at the time. Second, a sitting president can be impeached by the House of Representatives and removed by the Senate for high crimes and misdemeanors. Part two of the Mueller report is a very clear roadmap for impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee needs now to do its job and impeach Donald Trump for obstruction of justice for the crimes described in Part 2 of the Mueller report, the crimes for which he cannot be criminally charged by the Department of Justice because the Office of Legal Counsel says the Department of Justice cannot do that. But the Constitution says that the House of Representatives not only may do that, but it is their duty to impeach the president, to charge the president. You've been listening to crimes. a portion of the Politics Podcast with Richard Painter. To hear more, look for the Politics Podcast with Richard Painter wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We are in our second half hour of the show today, and as usual, we are doing our provocative progressive political panel. Joining us on the panel today are Tom Opel, who uh, was a a longtime uh, media strategist, uh, did a hitch as a special assistant to the Secretary of Navy during the Obama administration, and is now Executive Vice President of the American Sustainable Business Council. Also on the panel, as he is usually, is our own Executive Producer, Mark Grimaldi. And uh, on the line, uh, we have uh, our good friend Michael from the Bronx, uh, who uh, joins us on the panel today. Michael, how are you doing? Hi, Brad. Hi, everyone. Fine. Let's... uh, Try this, Michael. Uh, the Democratic uh, candidates are debating again, round three on Thursday night on ABC. Uh, what do you want to uh, hear from the ten Democratic candidates that are on uh, that will be uh, on national television Thursday night? Well, you know that Democrats have always said, rightly said, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. 
but this will be a new chapter of it, that not only do we go for impeachment proceedings against Trump, but also um, go with the issues of voting him out. And believe me, I know that the climate change will be a part of that when you look at not only with the Sharpie gate in which he's treating climate change as a joke, but then when he takes funds from FEMA to build his stupid wall, just like he took funds from the military to build his wall, I mean, you're stealing from the military after he had scolded NFL players for taking a knee and protesting during the national anthem, claiming that that disrespects the military. Hogwash, baloney, um, that's a bunch of malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. What Trump stealing from the military, that's disrespectful in itself, let alone a crime. Stealing from FEMA is a crime as well. And falsifying weather data is a crime. So let's address all that in the um, in the next debate, as well as calling for and pushing for Congress and Nancy Pelosi to treat Trump like a criminal that he is and start impeaching him the way any other prosecutor would go after a criminal. Okay. Uh, well, I believe that the uh, House is about to uh, uh, consider uh, and vote on a formal in, uh, uh, on a formal proposal to begin an impeachment inquiry. Uh, so we may see some action on that front. Uh, let's uh, talk to the panel about uh, the just turn and talk to the, about the uh, Democratic debate on uh, Thursday. Uh, first, uh, there are three candidates, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, uh, who were the only three candidates to consistently register in double digits in the national polls. Uh, Tom, uh, do you think there's still time for another candidate besides one of those three to emerge as a real player in the uh, contest for the Democratic presidential nomination? I do, Brad, but I think it would take at this point uh, something pretty unusual for it to happen. Look, I, I, I've always believed that, that we fundamentally, and, and this is particularly true of uh, our journalist friends, uh, and I say that as somebody who started as a journalist in my career, um, you know, frankly, we're used to sort of the narrative of protagonist, antagonist, and, you know, and, and sort of two main characters. Sometimes you get a third, and in this case, we've obviously got sort of the battle between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders for who is going to be the real progressive candidate versus the mainstream candidate. And, you know, it's interesting that Gary Hart was going around uh, uh, the other day, uh, you know, in, in the Hampshire sort of uh, reminding people about 1984 and how Mondale at the time was the considered the candidate of the establishment, and Gary Hart was the insurgent. And we sort of have the same kind of narrative developing with Joe Biden being seen as the establishment candidate. And like I say, Elizabeth Warren and, and uh, Bernie Sanders sort of competing for the the insurgency, the, the change mantle. Um, I, think for, I think for one of the other candidates to break into that top three at this point, one of those three has got to stumble badly. Um, or there's got to be some big moment 
Uh, and it's got to be more than just a debate moment. You know, as we saw for Senator Harris, who I thought had an exceptional debate, you know, what was it, back in the summer, uh, and clearly got a bump out of it, but it didn't last. And so uh, I, I think I think it's going to take something pretty significant um, for for the for the fundamentals of this race to be to, to change substantially. Okay. Well, Tom, you've been you have as much or more experience as a media strategist as just about anybody I know. Uh, what what should a Harris have done to follow up that big moment she had in the first debate when she challenged uh, Joe Biden on his record on race? Well, I think I, I think she should have you know she should have kept up the pressure. Um, she tried to, but then she got caught in sort of her own record. Uh, you know, it seemed like there were some stories that came out that, well, maybe, you know, maybe she had voted for some things that she was criticizing Biden for. Um, I, I don't think that I, I think what happened was and this this happens with a lot of campaigns. They planned for their moment, uh, you know, at the debate. But there was not a follow up plan. There was not. a All right. What are we going to do in day three, day four, day five, week five uh, after the debate? Um, I, I, I think that was a missed opportunity for her. Um, and um, I think in many ways, you know, the same thing happened to uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg. Uh, you know, he had his moment in the sun a few months ago and couldn't quite capitalize on it. Okay. Uh, Mark, do you think there's still room for another candidate besides Warren, Biden and uh, Sanders to break through? I, I'm going to just defer to Tom, and I completely agree with his analysis. Um, you never know. I mean, look at Bill Clinton, but uh, I, I think at this point the field is pretty solidified. But we will find out more Thursday night. Okay. Uh, that's all, folks. Thanks to my guest, uh, Emily No, uh, Tom Opel, and executive producer Mark Camaldi. We'll be back next Monday at 3 with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. From the very start of our nation, the most popular forum for debating and shaping our democratic rights was not stately legislative halls, but rowdy beer halls. Indeed, pub democracy remains strong across our country, as is now being shown by a hearty group of democracy rebels in Toledo, Ohio. The people of this city on the edge of Lake Erie were literally sickened in 2014 when a toxic algae bloom poisoned the lake, which is their source of drinking water. People were outraged that state officials who were in the pocket of the polluters did nothing to protect the lake from more poisoning. Mulling this over while quaffing beers in a local pub, the rebels hit upon a novel thought. What if Lake Erie could protect itself by asserting its legal right to, quote, exist, flourish, and naturally evolve? Thus was born the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, which the group proposed as a city charter ballot initiative. They got double the number of signatures required to put the proposition on February's ballot, mounted a door-to-door people's campaign to counter a media blitz partially funded by such giants as Coca-Cola and FedEx, and they won. A whopping 61% of Toledo's voters said yes to recognizing legally enforceable rights for the natural world. Supercilious corporate elites, however, refused to let such a trifling matter as the will of the people 
interfere with their sense of entitlement to poison for profit. So they've now gotten top Ohio officials to assert in a court filing that the state is the, quote, proprietor in trust of Lake Erie. Therefore, claim the officials, local voters have no power to deny so-called corporate persons the permission to pollute real people's water. This is Jim Hightower saying, Of course, the democracy rebels are not about to back down. So keep up with them at www.lakeerieaction.org. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.